This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. The scripture reading for today is from the book of Ezra, chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, chapter 5, 1 through 5, and chapter 6, 13 through 15. When the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the exiles were building a temple for the Lord, the God of Israel, they came to Zerubbabel and to the heads of the families and said, let us help you build because like you, we seek your God and have been sacrificing to him since the time of Eshadadan king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the rest of the heads of the families of Israel answered, You have no part with us in building a temple to our God. We alone will build it for the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, commanded us. Then the peoples all around them set out to discourage the people of Judah and make them afraid to go on building. They bribed officials to work against them and frustrate their plans during the entire reign of Cyrus, king of Persia, and down to the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Now Haggai, the prophet, and Zechariah, the prophet, a descendant of Edo, prophesied to the Jews in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, son of Sheltiel, and Joshua, son of Josedek, set to work to rebuild the house of God in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. At that time, Tatanai, governor of Trans-Euphrates, and Shethar Bozani and their associates went to them and asked, who authorized you to rebuild this temple and to finish it? They also asked, what are the names of those who are constructing this building? But the eye of their God was watching over the elders of the Jews and they were not stopped until a report could go on to Darius and his written reply be received. Then, because of the decree King Darius had sent, Tatanai, governor of Trans-Euphrates, and Shethar Bozani and their associates carried it out with diligence. So the elders of the Jews continued to build and prosper under the preaching of Haggai, the prophet, and Zechariah, a descendant of Edo. They finished building the temple according to the command of God of Israel and the decrees of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, kings of Persia. The temple was completed on the third day of the month Adar in the sixth year of the reign of King Darius. This is God's word. When God created Adam and Eve, he gave them a threefold mission. To be fruitful and multiply to walk with him in faith and obedience, and to expand the borders of Eden. God's vision was for an expanding and populous people living in God's dwelling place, walking with him in faith and obedience. That was God's vision, that's God's mission. When Adam and Eve sinned by preferring the building up of their own reputations over God's, they were exiled, they were banished from the dwelling place of God. But the threefold mission still remain. Fast forward in the story a bit, God reiterated this mission to a man named Abraham whose descendants years later would become the nation of Israel. They were a populous people, but their faith and their obedience vacillated quite often, and still they didn't have a place to dwell with God. Enter the promised land. 
The promised land of Canaan would become the new Eden. And through the leadership of Moses and Joshua, Israel took possession of that land, but they failed to conform it to God's purposes and plans. And Israel's sordid history is well attested in Judges, Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles. But in the end, Israel would share in Adam and Eve's fate by being banished from the promised land. They were taken into captivity first by Assyria, then Babylon, but God doesn't leave it there. He orchestrates a new exodus. The first exodus was out of Egypt. The second exodus was out of Babylon. And a remnant of God's people were released to return to Jerusalem and the first order of business once they arrived there was to rebuild the temple. And that's what the book of Ezra is all about. The rebuilding of the temple. Now, in order for us to appropriately transport this text into 21st century Christian living, we need to understand the significance of the temple. We're tempted to believe the temple is simply a church building. It's not. The temple is the dwelling place of God. It's the epicenter of God's manifestation of his presence. That's the place, the temple was the epicenter of his presence and his dwelling among his people. That's not the role of a church building because we live on the other side of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That his central historical event that means so much to us changed everything, including the dwelling place of God. No longer is the dwelling place of God a building, but rather, It's people, and it's you, Christian. You are the temple. You are the dwelling place of God. There are numerous places in the New Testament that teach this. Here's one, 1 Corinthians 3, verse 16. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? So Christian, you are God's temple. You are the dwelling place of the Lord. So when we look at Ezra's rebuilding project, we are talking about the revitalization of the dwelling place of God. That's how they would have understood it. That's the way we need to understand it. Transposing our understanding of the dwelling place of God from the temple to Christians, the body of Christ, the church. So we are talking about the reinvigoration of the church's worship life. We are talking in the end about spiritual reformation, about being spiritually reformed. So we're gonna ponder today three components to spiritual reformation. Here they are. Choose your spiritual advisors wisely, cling to the word vigorously, interpret hard times correctly. Three key components to spiritual reformation, to being reformed. Choose your spiritual advisors wisely, cling to the word vigorously, and interpret hard times correctly. First, choose your spiritual advisors wisely. God's people, a remnant of them, had been released. They're now in Jerusalem. They're hard at work rebuilding the temple. And keep in mind for them, it's much more than a structure. This is a spiritual thing. Their their worship life had been in shambles for decades. This is a spiritual reformation project for them. And along comes a group of people who just seem like they want to help. Listen to what they say. Let us help you build. 
Because like you, we seek your God and have been sacrificing to him since the time of Esar Hadan, king of Assyria, who brought us here. Appears harmless enough. They're probably low on bodies. A little more manual labor would be helpful at this point. But we need to know that the Israel's, Israel's leaders refuse the help. Now, why would they do that? Why would they say no? We need to know a little bit more about these folks who offered to help. The name Esarchadon, king of Assyria, is a clue that sends us back to 2 Kings 17. 2 Kings 17. So if you have your Bibles, keep a finger in Ezra. Keep a finger in Ezra. Flip back to 2 Kings 17. 2 Kings 17. I'm going to start reading in verse 24. The king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Kutha, Ava, Hamath, and Sepharvaim, and settled them in the towns of Samaria to replace the Israelites. They took over Samaria and lived in its towns. When they first lived there, they did not worship the Lord. So he sent lions among them, and they killed some of the people. It was reported to the king of Assyria, the people you deported and resettled in the towns of Samaria do not know what the God of that country requires. He has sent lions among them, which are killing them off because the people do not know what he requires. Then the king of Assyria gave this order, have one of the priests you took captive from Samaria go back to live there and teach the people what the God of that land requires. So one of the priests who had been exiled from Samaria came to live in Bethel and taught them how to worship the Lord. Nevertheless, each national group made its own gods in the several towns where they settled and set them up in the shrines the people of Samaria had made at the high places. The people from Babylon made Sukkoth-Benoth. Those from Kutha made Nergal. Those from Hamath made Ashima. The Avites made Nibhaz and Tartak. And the Sepharvites burned their children in the fire as sacrifices to Adramalek and Anamalek, the gods of Sepharvaim. They worshiped the Lord, but they also appointed all sorts of their own people to officiate for them as priests in the shrines at the high places. They worshiped the Lord, but they also served their own gods in accordance with the customs of the nations from which they had been brought. This is the history behind the group of people who have offered to help rebuild the temple. Do you see the problem? This is called syncretism. It is true the people lending a helping hand, or at least offering to, worship the Lord and make sacrifices to him. That much is true. If they were living today and we asked them, are you a Christian? They would have said yes. But their worship is tainted by competing allegiances. Their spiritual lives are duplicitous. They say they worship the Lord, but they don't worship the Lord the way the Lord said worship of him ought to be done. There's an impurity, a taintedness about their spiritual lives. They say they are Christians, but they're not Christians in the biblical sense of the term. There are other lovers in the bed. And in this spiritual reformation project, this simply will not do. So Israel's leaders refuse the help. Now look, there's a place for genuine unity. But unbridled ecumenism, unbridled ecumenism, unbridled ecumenical thinking 
inevitably results in redefining the gospel in terms of the lowest possible denominator. Unbridled ecumenism inevitably results in redefining the gospel. This is why doctrinal purity within the church is so important. And it's why I think the Apostle Paul placed such a heavy emphasis on it in the pastoral epistles as he was teaching Timothy and Titus to be pastors. He was very concerned that they maintained doctrinal purity in the churches they were leading. So Christian, my counsel to you is actually very simple. In your efforts to make forward progress in your walk with Christ, in your efforts to seek spiritual reformation, choose your spiritual advisors wisely. Choose your spiritual mentors wisely. Be careful about who you link arms with and for what purpose. Be discerning about whom you allow to get in your head and live there. I recently read an interview with a retired Air Force pilot who made an interesting statement. He said, for every degree you fly off course, you will miss your landing target by 92 feet for every mile you fly. And if you were flying in an airplane that was flying one degree off course, you would not notice it. We wouldn't notice it. It's imperceptible. So if you were flying from Milwaukee to uh, New York and you were one degree off course, you'd miss the runway in New York by about 13 miles. The spiritual influencers you have in your life right now may appear to be tracking with you, but I would encourage you to take a leering look. They might be one degree off course, which doesn't mean much today or tomorrow, but will mean a lot in 10 years. The differences you have may be imperceptible, but over a lifetime, you may find that you miss your landing spot by a considerable distance. The first key component to spiritual reformation is choosing your spiritual advisors wisely. Second key component to spiritual reformation is cling to the word vigorously. Let me read Ezra chapter five, verses one and two. Now Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the prophet, a descendant of Edo, prophesied to the Jews in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, son of Josadak, set to work to rebuild the house of God in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. Skip over to chapter 6, verse 14. So the elders of the Jews continued to build and prosper under the preaching of Haggai, the prophet, and Zechariah, a descendant of Edo. They finished building the temple according to the command of the God of Israel and the decrees of Cyrus, Darius, Artaxerxes, kings of Persia. Notice that Haggai and Zechariah had active preaching ministries during the time of Ezra and the rebuilding of the temple. What I want you to notice is the place of that preaching, the place of that ministry of the word in the rebuilding efforts. Notice that the word of God is the thing initiating the rebuilding efforts. It's the word of God, it's the ministry of the word, it's the preaching of the word that is sustaining the rebuilding efforts. They prophesy, they speak forth the word of God, and that action creates an effect. Zerubbabel sets to work to rebuild the house of God. The preaching of God's word initiates the rebuilding of the dwelling place of God. And then in chapter six, the Jews continued to build and prosper, how? Under the preaching of Haggai and Zechariah. The words that are used here are very reminiscent of what we find in Psalm 1. 
it says that person, the person who meditates on God's word, is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. It's reminiscent of Joshua chapter one. Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Sidestepping scripture in our attempts at spiritual reformation will result in something other than spiritual reformation. Sidestepping scripture in our attempts at spiritual reformation will always result in something other than spiritual reformation. In John 17, Jesus prayed, he said, sanctify them, my disciples, by your truth. Your word is truth. Not much Christian change happens apart from the scriptures. Spiritual reformation advances and prospers when the ministry of the word is faithfully attended to. That's the engine. That's the engine. Kyle Eidemann recounts a story. He said, when I started a new church in Los Angeles County, California, I found that I was overwhelmed with pressure and stress. I was working more than 70 hours a week. My wife would ask me to take a day off and I would say, I can't. I wasn't sleeping at night, so I started taking sleeping pills. When the church was about a year old, I woke up in the middle of the night and had this strange sense that God was laughing at me. As I lay in bed, I wondered, why is God laughing at me? It would take five years before I finally got an answer to that question. And here's how it happened. When we moved into our current house, I saved the heaviest piece of furniture for last, the desk from my office. As I was pushing and pulling the desk with all my might, my four-year-old son came over and asked if he could help. So together we started sliding it across the floor. He was pushing and grunting as we inched our way along. And after a few minutes, my son stopped pushing. He looked up at me and said, Dad, you're in my way. (laughs) And then he tried to push the desk by himself. Of course, it didn't budge. And then I realized that he thought he was actually doing all the work instead of me. I couldn't help but laugh. The moment I started laughing at my son's comment, I recalled that middle of the night incident and I realized why God was laughing at me. I thought I was pushing the desk. So here's my question for you. Who or what do you think is pushing your spiritual reformation desk? You? The latest devotional book you got? the trendiest spiritual discipline you've implemented? Who's pushing your spiritual reformation desk? Don't get fooled by spiritual window dressing. Got a theory about Christian publication, what I'll call spiritual fads. Many of these are good because they're an outworking of Ephesians 4. It's Jesus who gave to the church some to be pastors and teachers to do their work within the body of Christ, to equip God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we reach unity in the faith. Some of these things are good. Some of these things are good. But I believe that one of the reasons we're living in the golden age of Christian publication spiritual fads is that frankly, we've become bored with the Bible. And we need some other things to dress it up. So we put our self-made, self-produced, self-grown herbs and spices into it to make it taste a little bit better. 
Haggai and Zechariah's ministry within Ezra's storyline makes a powerful point. God's word does the heavy lifting. God's word is the thing pushing your spiritual reformation desk. And if you sidestep it, your desk will not move. Spiritual reformation advances and prospers when the ministry of the word is faithfully attended to. So cling to the word vigorously. And third, interpret hard times correctly. Now let's think about this together, okay? Ezra chapter four, we've got this group of people. We've studied their history. We know where they come from. We know their origins, their roots, okay? They, they on the surface, graciously offer some help to rebuild the temple, and they try to show common ground with the remnant of Jews who had returned, saying, we worship the same God you do. We make sacrifices to him. Here's my question. If they were true worshipers of Yahweh, if they were true worshipers of the Lord, how do you think they would have responded when Israel's leaders said no? If they were true worshipers of the Lord, they were really truly worshipers of Yahweh, how would they have responded when Israel's leaders declined the offer for help? I would imagine they would say something like, okay, no worries, we're here if you need us, we hope things go well for you and we'll pray for you. I would think it would be something like that. How did they respond? <laughs> did you catch it in the text? They set out to discourage the people and make them afraid to continue. They hired contractors to work against them and frustrate their plans. And the verbs that are used are all participles, which means they kept doing these things. This was a campaign that was launched. It was a campaign to discourage, intimidate, and frustrate. I would say, I don't know about you, but I would say they're not handling the word no very well. In fact, their response to the word no, to me at least, is confirmation Israel's leaders made a good decision. It's probably best that you didn't include them in what you were trying to do. This brings up an interesting point, a good leadership point, a good principle as you mentor people, as you disciple people, as you yourself are mentored or discipled, if you wanna test the metal of someone's character, watch how they respond to the word no. If you wanna test the metal of someone's character, watch how they respond to the word no. A colleague of mine has said, how you handle the word no says a lot about you. These so-called allies of Israel don't handle the word no very well. And so this campaign of discouragement and intimidation becomes the second obstacle they have to overcome. They've got to rebuild the temple. That's a big project. Now they've got those who live there working against them. It doesn't end there. Chapter five, we've got government interference as well. Tatanai, local governor, he interrogates them. Who authorized you to build this temple and finish it? What are the names of those involved in this? And then, if we were to read Haggai, we discover there are those within Israel's own ranks who are more interested in building and refining their own homes than rebuilding the temple. Chapter one, verse four, is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? He's saying you're working hard to build your nest egg, your expanding portfolio, while you, Christian, the dwelling place of God, remain in tatters. So the friction that grates against God's people in the rebuilding of the temple is just piling up one layer after another. 
first it's this and then it's this and then it's this and then it's this. I mean, it goes on and on. In life experience, you know this well, when one source of friction after another piles up, it can just wear you out. Yes. Yes. And at this point in the proceedings, I suppose if I was in Zerubbabel's sandals, I would have been tempted to think, we must be doing something wrong. If God was in this, surely it would be easier than this. But emerging from the text is a screaming truth. Just because it's difficult doesn't mean it's not of God. It's difficult because it is of God. Learning to interpret hard times correctly is a critical component to spiritual reformation. Because in your daily life, as you try to grow in your intimacy with the Lord, as you deepen your faith, as you make your obedience even more committed, it will feel like you're hitting a brick wall and you'll be tempted to throw in the towel. Spiritual reformation never goes unchallenged. It will always be challenged. Now let me push into this a little bit farther. This friction that they're experiencing is not well received in our culture, okay? I've said this a million times before. We, we live in a hedonistic culture. That's pleasure at any price. Pleasure is the ultimate good, okay? And every one of us drinks this every week, every day. Every subtle message you're fed is a hedonistic message. And so we all are naturally taught to think that if there is friction in our lives, what needs to change are our external circumstances. If I don't feel good inside about what's happening outside, what needs to change is the outside. The two are in conflict with one another. Internal desires, external circumstances, they're, they're creating friction. And what needs to change are the external circumstances. Years ago, C.S. Lewis challenged that idea in his book, The Abolition of Man. He said, for the wise men of old, the cardinal problem had been how to conform the soul to reality. And the solution had been knowledge, self-discipline, and virtue. For magic and applied science alike, the problem is how to subdue reality to the wishes of men. The solution is a technique. See what he's saying? In other words, Lewis is saying years ago, and by the way, when he says years ago, he wrote this in 1943. Years ago, that's long time before 1943. Years ago, people would try to change their hearts in order to deal with life. Today, people try to change life to suit the desires of their hearts. That's what Lewis is saying, and he's cautioning us against this. This friction occurs when the desires of my heart and my external reality are at odds with one another. And in a hedonistic culture, every one of us is naturally trained that the way you resolve the, the, the friction is to change your outer circumstances, manipulate the outer reality. That's the way you resolve the friction. But Lewis is arguing against that. 
And I think for good reason. Think back to the temptation of Jesus in Luke 4. He fasted for 40 days. The devil comes to him to test him. And what approach does the devil take? Jesus, you haven't eaten anything for 40 days. I can see that you're hungry. Command these stones to turn into bread and the problem will be resolved. What's the devil done? He spot the friction. I see friction, the devil says. There's conflict between Jesus' inner life and his outer reality. And so the devil's plan is to say, Jesus, you need to alter your outer reality in order to resolve this. Jesus says, no, I need to nourish my inner vitality. Jesus says, in order to get through this friction, I don't need my external circumstances to change. Rather, I need to feed my inner life. I'm going to go out on a limb and say this truth needs desperately to be applied to your life today. It's incredibly likely in a world like ours that we're all living through some sort of friction. The desires of our hearts and our external circumstances are in conflict with each other. And the temptation we face is to automatically conclude the best way to resolve the friction is for the external circumstances to change. I would invite you instead to take the Jesus approach. Instead, ask yourself this question. If these external circumstances don't change, what needs to change in my heart for me to get through this in a way that demonstrates love for God and love for neighbor? If these external circumstances don't change, what needs to change in my heart for me to move through this, to get through this in a way that demonstrates love for God with heart, soul, mind, and strength and love for neighbor? Learning to interpret hard times correctly means embracing a hard to swallow truth. The best way through hard times isn't to change your outer reality, but to nourish your inner vitality. That's the best route to being reformed. And this pattern is seen and present in the sufferings of Jesus. As he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, his outer reality was dark. And he even prayed that it might change. He did. But when it didn't, he didn't take matters into his own hands and seek to manipulate forthcoming events. When the crowds came to arrest Jesus and Peter cut off the ear of Malchus, Jesus said to him, Peter, I have 12 legions of angels at my disposal who could come and change this outer reality. But that's not the best way through this. The friction between Jesus' inner life and his outer reality was intense. And how did he handle it? How did he handle it? Not by manipulating his external circumstances. Instead, what do we see him doing all through the Passion accounts? What do we see him doing? He's praying. He's reciting scripture. He's praying scripture. He's meditating on God's word. He's clinging to the word vigorously. 
He's investing in his inner life. He's feeding his inner life. He's nourishing his inner life. He refused the help of 12 legions of angels so he could offer you the help of his saving blood. And what resulted from it? The greatest spiritual reformation of all time. The greatest spiritual reformation of all time occurred because Jesus attended to his inner life in the face of a dark external reality. And he amassed an army of believers, thousands upon thousands, millions upon millions, who will reign with him for an eternity. You see, a most glorious end awaits those who give primary attention to their inner vitality. A most glorious end awaits those who give primary attention to their inner vitality. That's the hope that is shown us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Jesus, you call us to follow you. And oftentimes that means straight through the middle of difficult times. Remind us that just because it's difficult doesn't mean it's not of you. It may be difficult because it is of you. Jesus, we know your interest lies not primarily in our comfort but in our transformation. And that may mean learning to live contentedly with whatever our external circumstances may be while you work on nourishing our inner lives. Jesus, as we learn to do this, I pray we would draw strength as we look to you. We want to fix our eyes on you the author and the perfecter of our faith. We do this now for your glory alone. Amen.